The name of Jesus. Name represents who he is. It's just not the name. It's, it's who Jesus is and what he does for us. And that is so important. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of Thessalonians. We're starting a study in Thessalonians 1 and 2. And if you would like to follow along, you don't have a Bible, raise your hands. Uh, we will make sure that you get one. Uh, David has a number that he would uh, be glad to share with you over there as we get into this series on 1 Thessalonians. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background, it, it's found, the book is, is towards the, uh, well, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, then First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, to give you an idea where it is. It's in the New Testament towards probably the back, middle, back part of the New Testament. But Thessalonians was actually probably the book, first book that Paul wrote. It was written around uh, 51, 52 A.D. Thessalonians uh, was written to a group of people in Thessalonica. And if you want to know a little more about what happened here, you can go to Acts chapter 16 and 17 because it's in Acts 16 and 17 where we see Paul going to this church of Thessalonica. He had been out on his second missionary journey. He had a man by the name of Silas with him. And on their way, as they went through some of the areas where he had gone on his first missionary journey, they picked up a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy was a, uh, I guess we could say, a student of Paul's. Paul had led him to the Lord, and now he was following along, a disciple. And so the three of them were traveling together, and as they came to uh, the Aegean Sea, Paul was going to go down to stay in Asia Minor, but he had a vision, and there was somebody in this vision saying, come and follow me, we need help, or come and we need help. And so he went across, and he ended up first at Philippi. And if you remember anything about that, in about chapter 16 of Acts, he went to Philippi, and there wasn't really a synagogue there. It was a habit of Paul to go to the Jews first and to the synagogue. So on Saturday mornings, as the Sabbath, he would usually go there and speak about Jesus Christ. And when he got to Philippi, they did not have a synagogue. There weren't enough Jewish men there to have a synagogue. And so uh, they had a prayer meeting out by the river. And you, he went out, and there was a lady by the name of Lydia there. And she became the first convert in Europe. She was the first one to receive Jesus Christ in Europe. Amazing thing. And he stayed there for a while. And uh, apparently there was a, a girl. She had a demon possession. And she was following him around and making all kinds of statements. And, and she was, would tell fortunes. Two men owned her. She was a little slave girl. And, and they owned her. And she would tell fortunes. And they were making money off this. And Paul, he, he was troubled by her following him. And so he turned around and he cast out the demon. Well, what did that do to their business? Wiped it out. They, they didn't like Paul anymore. So they wanted Paul run out of the city and... Uh, made some statements to the city fathers, if you look at this passage. And, and then uh, Paul and Silas were taken, and they were beaten, and they were thrown into prison. And if you remember, uh, about midnight, it's amazing. Here they are. They've been beaten with rods. They're in prison. They're in stocks, and they're singing hymns. I, I, I don't know if I would be up at midnight singing hymns after I'd just gotten beaten, but that's what Paul and Silas were doing. And there was an earthquake, and the jail doors were thrown open. And the jailer woke up and he went, oh, no, because you see, if he lost any of those charges that he had in jail, he would lose his life. And Paul cried out and he says, oh, don't worry. We're here. We're all here. 
And he went out in the jailer, accepted Jesus Christ along with his family. They were baptized that night. The next day, it, uh, word came to the city fathers that Paul and Silas were actually Roman citizens. And you don't beat Roman citizens. And so they begged them to leave, and they went on their way. And this just gives us a little background. They passed a couple of smaller cities and came to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a large a Greek metropolitan-type town. It had about 200,000 people, which was a large city at that time. That city is still there today uh, on the Aegean Sea, and uh, much larger. But Paul went in there, and he began to preach. And it says he preached for three Sabbaths. And uh, we don't know if he stayed much longer than that or not. That'd be about three weeks. He probably stayed a little longer. And then because of the confrontation and the conflict that was going on there, the Jews were unhappy with him. A lot of people had come to know the Lord out of the synagogue and, and Gentiles, as well as said leading women. And, and so they basically were run out of town again. But there was a good church that was established and... Paul left Timothy and Silas to go back. It calls him Silvanus here in your passage to go back to the town. Uh, later on, they caught up with Paul when he was in Corinth, and Paul wrote the letter to encourage. And you know, it isn't all letters that Paul writes that were encouragement. <laughs> Sometimes it was because of problems they had in their, city, in their churches and their cities. But here, man, he praises them. And then he answers some questions that they have. And I want to just read these first 10 verses for you. It's the first chapter of Thessalonians, and then we're going to uh, study it this morning just to get a handle on what it says and how it relates to us. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, peace to you or grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. In other words, it wasn't just our preaching. I didn't just have a, a good speech. But also it came in the power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Acacia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a report, reception we had from, with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray, shall we? Father, uh, it's great to look at this passage and just realize that here was a church. Here were a, was a group of people or individuals who had such a reputation that there were churches throughout the Roman Empire that were hearing about them and how they had received Paul and how things had changed and what a difference it had made for them. 
Father, I pray that our reputations would be like that. Not negative, but positive, Father. That people would see the joy, the peace, the comfort that comes from a relationship with you. And that you are truly sovereign and you are in control of all things. So, Father, help us to understand your will this morning as we look at this passage. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you have for us. Thank you, Father, for this little book and the little book to follow and what you have to teach us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, as we go back up here to verse 1, if you have your Bibles, it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, and I mentioned earlier that Paul was going out on this missionary journey, and Silvanus was just another name for Silas and Timothy, and they went to the church, or it was written to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and church simply means called out once. It's what ecclesia, it means to call out. Uh, they would they would have uh, ecclesia. They would have meetings in the town square whenever they had some important announcements to have in town. So it was a it was a name that the Christians took and they embraced for themselves. But originally it was a, it was a secular term. And so uh, when you think of called out, well, who called them out? Well, God, because you see, God's sovereign. God is the one who draws us into that relationship with him, and he is our sovereign God, and uh, it makes a difference. Uh, salvation, and that's really what Paul is talking about here, is always instituted by God, not by us. We tend to think we go looking for God, and in reality, it's the Holy Spirit that draws us, and we go, oh, this is where it's at. This is what it's about. And and so we see the sovereignty of God. If you go on down to uh, verse 4, It says, knowing brethren, beloved by God. That simply means God loves you. And you are his choice, his choice of you. He chose you. And uh, that's a major doctrinal theological issue. But realizing, if you go back to uh, Ephesians, it says he chose us before the beginning of creation, before anything else. Uh, He chose you. And, And people get kind of caught up with that at times. I think too much so. What we need to realize is that in the Bible, it talks about what God does. And God chooses from the beginning of time who are going to be his. And then we begin to get practical. And we want to sit down and figure out what that is and what is my role. Well, you see, on the other side, we have man's responsibility, and that's to believe and receive. Now, how do I know who God chooses? Because they believe and receive. And it goes together. When we get to heaven, we're going to find out how that all fits. But right now, we don't quite get it. And so we need to accept, what does the Bible teach about what I'm supposed to do? What does God have for me? What does he desire for me? Um, I remember when I was a boy, and this is a very comforting thing. I, I listened to a pastor, and he was preaching on a passage like that. And he talked about the fact that God looked down, and he chose us, not because of how good we were, we, we don't even understand why he chooses and why he doesn't choose certain individuals. It says that's God's sovereign right. But wow, to think that this God that created the universe, that put everything into existence, that created humanity, that he created the complexity of what a human is, looked down and chose me. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. Why would he choose me? Because it's God's choice. And you see, if you're here today and you hear this, you realize that God makes that same draw for us. Now, we 
in turn have to respond by faith and receive what he's given to us. That's our responsibility. And uh, in, in some ways, those two, they, they seem to be in contradiction, and theologians have argued over our free will versus the sovereignty of God. And I think what we have to realize is just come back and, and know that we're not going to understand everything, but we are chosen, and we have the responsibility to follow and receive God as our Lord and Savior. Uh, back in Deuteronomy, there's a verse that when I'm not sure how to take things or how to respond to things, I go back here because I realize the truth. It says the secret things, the things I can't understand, they belong to God. They belong to the Lord God. But the things revealed to us, those things that we have in his word that he's made known to us, belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law, that we may observe what God has given to us. So the secret things belong to God. But the revealed things, the things God made known to us, belong to us. And we need to grab a hold of those things, and we need to respond to those things. And then Paul went on in our passage this morning, and he just talked about his thanks for, uh, for this church. Beginning in verse 5, says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. It wasn't just in those preconceived sermons that I'd prepared, he said, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction, with full understanding, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And he said, because of that, you looked at our lives, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And I think that's the most natural thing. When somebody shares with you like Jesus Christ, you may say, well, I want to be like him. But ultimately, you turn and you begin to get to become like Jesus because you see that's more important. It's great to have a person to follow to begin with, but later on we saw our direction on who Jesus is. Having received the word with much tribulation, and it was not easy for the believers at that time, but with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. Wow. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. And boy, I really like that for the church. You know, there's two types of churches. Two types of churches in terms of how people see them. There are those churches where the name of the church comes up and somebody immediately says, you don't want to go there. They don't get along with each other. They aren't very friendly. Uh, they have some doctrinal issues. They have theological issues. They, they fight. That's not a good church. And you know, you hear about churches once in a while. You, you, you say, where should I go? Well, don't go to that one. But you know, there's another kind of church. And that's the church where immediately you drive into town, you ask somebody, where's a good church? Oh, and they give you the name. I would hope they would say that about Brentwood Bible Fellowship. I would hope to say, Wow, that's a church that you need to go check out. That's a church you need to go to because that reputation's there. And, and that's the way it was for the Thessalonians. And he says, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God and from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait on for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And so we don't face those kinds of things. They aren't going to be there. Not every church was perfect. 
Corinth had all kinds of problems. <laughs> they were what you call the fleshly church. They weren't following God the way they should. They were fighting over who was the best pastor. Might fight over which is the best denomination. I don't know. Uh, there are too many of those things that get in the way, folks. They, uh, they were fighting over going to court with one another, whether they should sue one another or not. They were struggling with moral issues. They were struggling with uh, situations where they'd come to communion. They would come to the, to the communion service, and they wouldn't get along, and there was division and divisiveness, and it, it was destructive. And so Paul wrote to them about the problems. If you look at the book of Galatians, it was about their legalism and all their rules and regulations. They were trying to go back to the law rather than following the freedom that they'd gotten in Jesus Christ. Colossians had the Gnostic heresy. It was a, a false doctrine. It was false teaching. And so Paul dealt with those issues in those books. But in this book, he says, wow, I'm so thankful for you. Because your reputation is so good and things are so possible, positive. You know, who do you, who do you look back on? And every time you think of them, especially if you're in prayer, you pray and thank God for them. Do you have anybody like that? Do you have individuals like that, that when they come to mind, you immediately say, thank you, Father, for the impact they had on my life? I'm sure I can look back to the churches I was in in Central Oregon and in Antioch, and I haven't been in that many churches as a pastor, but there are individuals that I can always go back to and go, wow, thanks, Father. Mike was such an encouragement when we were up there in Bend. And Father, I, I just thank you, and I could name you some names that were there at Delta Bible Church that were always an encouragement and still are. And I, and I thought today of, of John and Jan Ryther, and they're leaving, and they were there in Bend with us, or I mean, they were there in uh, Antioch with us, and, and then when we were a short time at First Family, and then when we came out here, they came with us. When there was work to be done, they were there to do the work. <laughs> they were the first ones there, and oftentimes on a work day, they were the last ones to leave. They came out during the week and did other things, and I thought, they're going to leave, but I'm always going to be thankful for them. And just the impact. And I thought a little bit about it, and I thought, how many people would say that for me? I'm so thankful that he impacted my life. And that should be our desires, that as people think about us, maybe we're separated, separated by time, separated by space. But we're to be encouragers. In Hebrews it says, let us not forsake our assembling together. Don't forget to come together regularly, but come together to encourage one another. We're to be encouragers, to encourage one another and build one another up. You know, I, I think it's the idea that you always want to say something that builds up instead of tears down. If, you, if all you're going to say is going to tear somebody down, probably better off not to say anything. I, I read the story of this young man. He, he was just dating this girl, and he was really anxious to, to go on a date. They were going to spend time together, and he went to her, her house or apartment early uh, for the date, and he knocked on the door, and she came to the door, and she wasn't ready. I mean, her hair was teased in a hundred different directions. She was kind of standing there. It was, a, it was an awkward situation. And to remove some of that awkwardness, she says, what do you think of my hair? And uh, 
you know, all the ladies don't tease their hair in the same way today. But this one had, and, and, and the young man hesitated. You know, he just didn't want to say anything. He wasn't quite how, sure how to respond. And he says, finally, well, it looks like it's about to become something wonderful. You see, you pull it out, you do those positives. Uh, Christians are to be encouragers. And uh, that was how Paul opened this letter. I, I like the, the introduction he says, and, and so we want to get a little deeper into this. It says, the church of Thessalonians, verse 1, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If your church is not based on God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, if the church is not in them, it isn't a church. It's just some kind of social organization. And then he says, grace to you and peace. And that was just a, a normal introduction for Paul. He used those terms. Grace was, was kind of a Greek term, and it meant goodness. It would be, uh, have a good day, if we were to use it today. That's just kind of how it was. I hope you have a great day. It's a good day. And so there was the kind of grace that was goodness. He took that term, and he made it a Christian term. And then peace came from a Jewish term, shalom, which means to experience peace. And so he says, grace and peace. Greeks and Jews were both uh, received this, this introduction, this statement. But it's interesting because grace has to do with God's unmerited favor. It has to do with his love for us. It's, it's freely given. And he always had grace first and peace second. You see, if you've not received the grace of God, you'll never have the peace of God. And so you begin to realize that there is that grace that comes in and it's a reality in your life. And, and that's a real truth. And then he goes on and he begins to share three, I think, grace principles that are so important in the Christian life. Chapter two, or verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. We pray for you constantly. That's the idea. Constantly or without interruption is what that word would be. Bearing in mind, bringing to mind your work of one, work of faith, and your labor of love, and the steadfastness of the hope in Christ Jesus in the presence of God our Father. And I want to look at those three for just a moment. They seem to be very important uh, with Paul, the idea of uh, faith and love and hope. Uh, we find them in other letters as well. If you go back to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, it's what we call the love chapter. But he finishes that great chapter with his, with his statement about grace and hope and love. The last verse he says, but now faith, or not grace, but faith and hope and love abide these three. These three remain. But he said the greatest of these is love. Love is the key. If you go back to the book of Colossians, and uh, the first few verses of Colossians, again, Paul was speaking to the Colossian believers. And beginning in uh, verse 4, it says, Since we have heard of your Faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is in the past. Okay, we're looking at past, present, and future of the Christian life. Your faith in Christ Jesus, that is when you received him, you believed in him, you accepted him as Savior and Lord, and the love which you have for all the saints. That's kind of your present life. That's how you're relating to people today is out of love. And if you don't love God, it says the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul. And then it says, you know what the second one? 
Love your neighbors yourself. That should be true of the Christian life. That's how we live today. That's how we relate to people. And then he went on here, and, and in the fifth verse, he says, because of the hope, that's future, that's what you desire. In terms of, of English, it's kind of a, not a positive thing. You hope it's going to happen. You're not sure it's going to happen. But when you talk about God and hope in God and heaven, it is assured it is going to take place. It says, the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it has in all the world also constantly bearing fruit, and it goes on from there. So as we look at this, we see Paul is once again talking about this idea of faith, love, and hope. Faith being our past. Somebody came to you, they shared Jesus Christ, you read the Bible, you realized you needed a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, and you put your trust in him. Trust Faith go together. There's same kind of statement there. And so we put trust in what he says. We receive him as Lord and Savior. That's what it's talking about. But it says, we've heard of your, or know of your work of faith. And it would seem like, boy, works and faith don't go hand in hand, do they? You know, we, we think of doing works to receive Jesus Christ. God says that doesn't make it, but faith... But if you have faith, you're going to do works. It's what Paul said. There's going to be a change in your life. There's going to be a difference because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says in Ephesians. We know this verse. We oftentimes go back to it. But in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, if you don't have this marked or you're not aware of where it is in the Bible, I would really encourage you to go back and, and check it out. But in chapter 2 of Ephesians... In verse uh, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace, that is God's unmerited favor, it's not what you did, it's what he did. You've been saved through faith. You received his grace by believing and receiving. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's something God gives you freely. Not as a result of works, not because of what you've done, how good you are, so that no one may boast. But in verse 10, it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, receiving him by faith, created in Christ Jesus for works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You know, a lot of times when people look at uh, the book of James and they look at the books of Paul, they think that they're in contradiction to one another. But in reality, when we look at this, James and Paul say the same thing. What Paul says is you're saved by faith because the Jews were so caught up with what they did that they thought they were saved by what they did. And he says, that's not where it's at. But as a result of your faith, you're going to begin to do good works. Your life's going to change. Back in James... James uh, said very something very similar in chapter 2, verse 17. It says, for even so faith, in other words, you believe in God, but if it has no works, it's dead, being by itself. Someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith. You're going to see it in my life by my works. And then he goes on in verse 19, and I hear people saying, oh, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, 
but there's never a, a, a real commitment of their lives. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. That's true. You've got it down. And then he says, the demons also believe and they shudder. But are you willing to recognize, O oh foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? There is nothing there. It, it's kind of the idea of repentance. It's turning from where you were. But you do not turn from the old life until you've got the power of God to help you do it. Faith starts it. It starts with belief. It starts with faith. Uh, down in verse 9 of, of 1 Thessalonians 1, it says, um, beginning in verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, I want you to see something. When you realize your life is in a state where you're no longer in control, there's kind of things out of control, you're not going to change anything, you know that you're not in a right relationship with God, uh, what you do, and it's called basically faith, but repentance, you turn from where you've been to follow God. That's the first step. It's not a matter of turning away from your habits, your hang-ups, the pain, the various things you're going through, it's not so much turning away from them as it is turning to God. But what if you turn to God and he's over here? What happens to the things back here, all of those things you were serving that seemed so important to you? They're behind you now. You turn to God and you turn from, it says, idols. Now, we don't have a lot of little idols sitting on shelves at home, but we do have things that we worship sometimes. It may be our jobs, it may be money, uh, maybe substances that control our lives, uh, it may be certain relationships, maybe our hobbies, and they take the place of God. We don't just turn away from them, what you do is you turn to Jesus, and when you turn to Jesus, they fall off to the back doesn't mean you aren't still involved with some of those things you are but they're no longer the priority in your life and that's what it talks about the work of faith when I have faith there are going to be certain things that I may do that I didn't do before uh, when a man turns to God he walks by faith it says that in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 17 it says we walk by faith instead of by sight it's not it's not what we see or what we think, but it's what God sets out for us. Uh, Jesus never said, come to God by your works. But it's faith. And when we step out in faith, there's, a, there's a, an event back in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, Jesus was out and preaching and the multitudes were there. And he was out on the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. And wow. The multitude got bigger and bigger and bigger. He's on the shore, and pretty soon he's back here into the water. And Peter and Andrew were there with their boat, and James and John and Zebedee, they were over here with their boat. And he says, hey, can I get in your boat and preach from the boat? And, and Peter said, yeah, yeah. So he got in the boat. They'd been out fishing all night. They'd cleaned their nets. They were tired. They were probably wanting to go home, but Jesus asked them. And so they, oh, okay. You know, sometimes isn't that the way the Lord says, won't you do this? And we go, hmm, okay. But that's where they were, and so he got in the boat, and he was preaching, and at the end of his message, he said, hey, let's go out into the deep water and cast your nets in. Now, I remember fishing. You cast the nets in, they get dirty, and then you have to come and clean them, and you don't want to have to come in and clean them a second time that day. But Peter said, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, that's what we'll do. 
And they went on out into deep water. He says, we fished all night. You know, I'm a fisherman, and I know there's just no fish out here. But if you say so, and he went out and he cast his net into the water, believing that Jesus Christ said he should do that. And he came in with a load of fish that they couldn't handle. And they called James and John to come out and help them because they had so many fish. Started with what? Faith in what Jesus said. It ended up in works, doing what he asked them to do. That's the work of faith. And that's what Paul was talking about here, is you respond in faith and the works follow. And so that was a a key. He goes on, uh, if there's no works in your life, if there's no evidence to your faith, you need to probably stop and ask, where am I? Where am I in relationship to God? Then he talked about the labor of love in verse 3. He said... uh, You do the work of faith and the labor of love. Labor has to do with strenuous activity. It's toil. Um, I I think it's love in action. Love is what we do. It's it's present. Faith was where we stepped in. That was past. Labor of love, that's that's the present. We love one another because that's what we're called to do. Uh, Who do you love? And I'm not talking about just that emotion. Who are you committed to their well-being? You desire the best for them. Do you know that's what it says men are supposed to do in their marriages? They're to love their wives in that way as Christ loved the church. It was a sacrificial love. But, but when we do that, we carry the burden of that other person. We, we come alongside. It's, it's like the old illustration of the little girl that was going along and she had her brother who was getting to be pretty good size and he was on her hip and she was carrying him. And some man said, oh, isn't he too, too heavy for you? And she said, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. You see, that's what love does. Love has this ability to carry that which is maybe more than we would. Jesus put it this way. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you really love me, you're going to do the things I ask you to do. The things that we love, sometimes we get tired, but we still do them because we enjoy them. We want to be there. We love them. Now, most people get up in the morning. Some of you get up at 3, 4, 5, 6 in the morning. You go out and you drive up Vasco or whoever to get out of here, and you're going to work. Why do you go? Because you love it? No, not usually. It's because at the end of two weeks or a month or whatever, you get a paycheck. But it can become very tiring. And it becomes very burdensome when you're doing that because it's not the love of your life. You see, when we love something, we do it joyfully, even though it can become hard and even though it can sometimes take time, we do it because this is what we want to do. This is what we desire. When we serve God... In the body of Christ, it should be because we love God and we love the church. And when we're going to work in the church and all we can do is look around and I'm the only one working and how hard this is and how difficult it is and I'm so tired of it and I'd rather not do it or somebody comes and asks you to serve and you say, no, no, I don't have time. The probability is our focus is on ourselves and not on God whom we're to love or not on the other believers that are in the church who we are to love. And we have things like burnout, and we're tired out, and we're worn out. 
because we're probably doing it for the wrong reason. We've lost our focus. And sometimes, boy, we're tired. We need to take a rest. I'm not going to tell you that that isn't the case, but I think oftentimes it's because we have the wrong focus for why we're doing things. We've missed the focus of loving God. Jesus said it. If you love me, you're going to do the things I ask you to. He says, if you love me, you're going to love your brother. If you don't love your brother, then it's kind of an evidence you may not love me. And so, so we come back, and, and I think it's just that we need to evaluate, and then very quickly the last point is the steadfastness of hope. Patience is the idea of steadfastness, sticking to it, continuing on. These are the three graces that we find here. Uh, hope is the last one. It's the future. And I have a hope in my future, and in the, in the Christian life, it is a hope that is assured. Um, uh, everything we do in life is based on hope. Have you ever noticed that? It's, it's uh, based on the hope of what's going to happen tomorrow. You get up and you go to work with the hope that you may get a promotion, or the hope that you may get a raise, or the hope that this deal is going to go through, or... Boy, just the hope that things, <laughs> I'm going to get a paycheck next week. You know, sometimes we get there, but there is that assured hope, and there's the hope that is conditional. We're just not sure yet. You raise your kids in hope, right, that they turn out all right, that when they get to be adults, they're going to be productive adults. So you get married with the hope that you're going to have a fulfilled, happy life. Boy, I sure hope this turns out okay. As Christians, we live with an assured hope of the return of Jesus Christ. You know, I've had people ask me, do you think Jesus is coming back soon? And, and then looking at all of the, the signs, and we see the things going on in the Middle East and Israel back in the land and all the different things, and I said, yeah, I think there's going to be a return of Jesus Christ in time. I, I go back to Revelation chapter 20, and it talks about the fact he sets up a kingdom for a thousand years. you got seven chapter or seven verses there, and... Six times he talks about that thousand-year reign. And I go, man, that's literal. He's coming back. And, and there are wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes, and it talks about the different things that are going to go on and, and that have to happen before he returns and sets up his kingdom. But you know what? In chapter 4 of First Thessalonians, we're going to talk about what's called the rapture. And in the rapture, Jesus doesn't come to earth. It's before this seven-year tribulation period but it says he comes in the clouds just as they saw him go, and those who are believers will be caught up with him. We're going to get into that in chapter 4, and then chapter 5, we're going to get a little more into the end times and uh, what that's all, or 5, and then also in Second Thessalonians. But there was a hope, and the reason they wanted to know about this is because Paul had told them that Jesus was coming back, and he hadn't come yet. Well, where is he, Paul? Why isn't he here? We thought he'd be here by now. We have people that have died. And we're patient. We're waiting. But, well, they're in the grave. What's going to happen to mom and dad? You know, they, they, they're gone now. It's been 2,000 years. A lot of people have lost their hope. They're looking for Christianity, not for the hope of the future and what God's going to do for them, but for how God's going to make their life easier today, right? And he does in love. But in, in terms of the hope, I remember when I was a boy, I accepted the Lord when I was quite young. And I didn't accept the Lord because I was such a sinner. I hadn't gone out and done anything that was really bad yet. But I knew that there was a heaven. 
The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord for those who know Jesus Christ. And I was looking forward to that, and so I asked Jesus in my heart because I wanted to be there. It goes on in that last couple of chapters of Revelation. It talks about a new heaven and new earth where we're going to live in incorruptible bodies. Jesus is going to come back, and we are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye when we're caught up to heaven. We're going to see that in chapter 4. And I have a hope. A steadfast hope. Are you steadfast in your hope? Thessalonians was commended. Thessalonians were commended for their work of faith. That's that's in the past when they began to follow Jesus Christ. Their labor of love, which is what's going on today, as we relate to the needs of others, and that steadfast hope, realizing there's a day when Jesus is going to come back, and realizing that we just hang on and wait, because sometimes it's not easy, is it? Sometimes we go through trials, we go through hardships, it may be at work, it may be in relationships, it may be financially, and you know, we just kind of hang on. Have you ever seen that little picture of the kitten hanging on to a rope, and at the bottom of the caption it says, just hang on. (laughs) And that's sometimes how we feel in life, we're just hanging on, but we do have a hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know when you're hanging on, it feels like you're hanging on to that rope because, Lord, things aren't going very well. You know, you really aren't hanging on, but God's hanging on to you. And he's got you, whatever you're going through. That's the key when you have that relationship with him. I want to read a poem to you in closing this morning. And uh, I think it kind of lays it out. As we're looking at it, it says, when things go wrong, as they sometimes will, when the road you're trudging seems all uphill, when the funds are low and the debts are high, and you want to smile, but you have to sigh, when care is pressing you down a bit, rest if you must, but don't quit. Life is hard with its twists and turns, as every one of us Sometimes learns, and many a failure turns about when he might have won had he stuck it out. Don't you give up the pace, though the pace seems slow. You may succeed with another blow. Success is failure turned inside out. The silver tint of the clouds of doubt. And you never can tell how close you are. It may be near when it seems so far, so stick to the fight when you're hardest hit. It's when things seem worse that you must not quit. Sometimes we want to just stop and quit and give up, but we realize by faith that God is there for us. We realize that we are to display love just as God displayed love for us. And that we have a hope, a hope and an eternal destination, a Savior who loves us and cares for us. And we just keep going through his power and his strength. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to you this morning. And I just praise you for your goodness to each and every one of us. I praise you for Jesus Christ who came as a sacrifice for me and for each individual here to give us eternal life.
But we have to accept it by faith, Father. I realize that if there's no faith, if there's no reception, it's not ours. And I pray for each individual here that they would understand that. It's not what we do, but it's what Jesus did for us. Our work of faith, the big first one, is to trust. It's to believe, to accept. And that is a work of faith. Father, might we be individuals that display the love of Jesus Christ to one another. I pray that as people think of Brentwood Bible Fellowship, they would think of us in a positive way, just as people in that time thought of the Church of Thessalonians, of the Thessalonica, in a positive way. They had a great reputation, Father. As individuals, we want to have that. As a church, we desire to have that, and that's only through your blessing and your power and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And Father, never help us never to forget our hope to be steadfast in our faith, to be strong and committed to our walk because of the fact that someday Jesus is going to come back. And the Bible says in terms of that rapture, in terms of calling us who are Christians out of this world, it may be right now or it may be a thousand years from now. You know, we look at the Bible, it says to you, time isn't the same as it is for us. Jesus said he was coming soon, but then it turns around and says, for God, a day is like a thousand years. <laughs> Certainly, we have barely touched a little bit of eternity with our lives. Help us to be faithful. Thank you, Father, for the study we're going to have in this great little book. Thank you for each individual here, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit might minister to them and encourage them and build them up right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.